Well, let's open our Bibles to uh, Psalm 119. We're going to look at the stanza that goes from verse 98 to 104. Psalm 119, 98 to 104. Now, some of you are not old enough to remember an uh, incredible artistic giant of the probably 50s and maybe a little of the 60s, Yogi Bear. So, uh, any Yogi Bear fans in here? Okay, a couple. You know, his, um, his depiction of himself was a quote that became part of that uh, life uh, cycle. And it was, um, hey, boo-boo bear, I'm smarter than the average bear. You remember that? Smarter than the average bear. Everybody wants to be smarter than the average bear. I think everybody wants to, to make wise decisions, to have knowledge, to have insight into the choices of life. And uh, once again, our Bible is going to give us an incredible roadmap for how to make wise uh, decisions, how to be smarter than the average bear. And uh, in this case, the average bear is a follower of Jesus. Before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about decisions in general. Apparently we make, according to a variety of studies, about 35,000 decisions a day. And they've argued about how could you make 35,000? That would mean you'd be making a decision every second or second and a half. But we make a ton of unconscious decisions. Um, When you're walking, you make an unconscious decision of where to put your foot, how to shift your weight. Uh, you make an unconscious decision when you're driving about where you turn your eyes and where you, how much focus you give on the near and, and versus the far. So the 35,000 doesn't surprise me. What, what's interesting, though, is that over a lifetime, that's, that's in excess of, of uh, 772,000 uh, decisions. And, and, and apparently, according to some studies, about 150 of them we regret, 150,000 of them we regret. That's a lot of decisions, admittedly unconscious in many cases. But one other study said that we do make about 27 judgments a day. Now, a judgment is a calculated, thoughtful response to some sort of stimuli that we've allowed into our lives. 27 different decisions, and it takes us between, uh, how much, how long did it take? About eight or nine minutes? Eight, nine minutes. Nine minutes per, per decision. So nine times 27, you've got a whole lot of time in your day that's getting devoted to making a judgment. Now, it might be a judgment about, you know, what to wear today, which I think that is the dumbest set of decisions we could make all day long. But nonetheless, uh, I like, who was it? Um, Jobs. He had one outfit, you know, the little black sweater or sweatshirt or whatever that thing was. And uh, what was it? Turtleneck. Turtleneck? Wasn't it a black turtleneck? Anyway, you know, got up in the morning and had 15 of them in his closet. I mean, it removes all choices. Not a problem. Um, But the 27 judgments that we make a day, these are things that that are important. These are things that probably have some level of consequence. Um, Judgment, for example, about what you choose to put in your kid's lunch. You say, well, that's not a big deal. It's not, but if, if over the course of their entire life you gave them high fructose something or another, yeah, it might have an impact on them. So, so even decisions like that could be considered judgments. We have different judgment or decision-making styles. And in some of us are very impulsive. We make a decision quickly, done, boom, over. 
Um, we make decisions maybe sometimes out of compliance. Okay, I live in America. They say I can only drive 65 miles per hour. Who does that? But drive 65 miles per hour on the freeway. You know, if you're going to be making good judgments under compliance, you would drive 65 miles an hour on, on the freeway. Sometimes we, we delegate decision-making. Um, uh, my dad used to joke that in our family, he and my mom had a, had a good balance for decision-making. He said, I make all the major decisions, and, and your mother makes all the minor ones. And when we'd ask, well, what kind of major decisions are you making, Dad? He would say, well, whether to go to war with Russia, whether or not we should secede from the Union, whether, you know. Uh, but, but delegating is part of the decision-making. That is a style. Uh, avoidance. Uh, you know, doing anything to avoid making a choice, making a decision, making a, a final conclusion about something. Balancing, trying to go, well, I went that way that time, and then I'll go this way this time. That's another style. And then, and then the one that, that, that we'd like to maybe think is, is part of our decision-making process, we prioritize based on reflection. We sit and think about it. It's an important enough decision. We look for input, and, and I'm going to talk about what kind of input in a minute, and, and we prioritize based on, on that reflection. Um, I'm told by the experts that we have a sweet spot. A sweet spot meaning if we have so many choices, that's best. It's enough to make a good choice, but not too much to be overwhelmed. And that sweet spot is somewhere between 8 and 15 choices. Have you looked at the cereal aisle in your store recently? 8? Give me a break. I think there's 8 different kind of checks. Isn't there? Let's see. Maybe 4 or 5. My point being is that we don't always get an optimum number. I was, I was amused to see that when we make decisions affects how, uh, how, they, how the outcome is or what, the, what the, the variables are affected by when during the day we make decisions. So if we make them early, when we've got some energy, we're not all, all you know, wrung out, there's a tendency for those decisions to be better decisions than the ones we make at 11 o'clock at night. And one of the illustrations was a study they did of, of judges, judges that were responsible for making paroles. And, and this particular study said that if, if the parolee, his case, came before the judge early in the morning, 70% of those were, were agreed to. They were paroled. But if those cases came late in the afternoon, only 10% of them were approved. So, you know, the, the, the fact of, of when during the day we're addressing things has, has to do with the quality of, of our decisions. But ultimately, for us, as followers of Jesus Christ, we want to look into his word. And so we're in Psalm 119, starting at verse number, I said 98, I'm going to start with 97. He says, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are with me. Are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate 
every wrong path. We all want to be, in the words of that particular portion of scripture, wiser than our enemies. We want to have more insight than our teachers. We want to make decisions having greater amounts of understanding than our elders. We want to gain understanding from his word. Wise decisions are made when they're reflected out of God's word. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're sitting there saying, yeah, but Sherry, there's not an index in the front that says when you're confronted with two opportunities to go to Baylor or TCU as a college, which one do you choose? You know, page 52, verse 6. That's not so. There, it isn't in there. So what do we do with the myriad of decisions and judgments that we're faced, we're faced with when we don't have that kind of an index? Well, we want to look at principles. We want to look at things that affect the greater, more important issues of life. So it may boil down to it doesn't matter whether it's TCU or, or Baylor. And then it's a matter of personal preference because the Bible says he loves to give us the delights of our lives. When we delight in Baylor, we get to go to Baylor if there's not an imposing reason to go somewhere else. I'm looking over here because, you know, our, our friend Erica's son had that choice. My point being is that there are major decisions. Do I marry Fred or do I marry Larry? Okay, that's not in the index either. Fred and Larry are not in the index. But there are definite principles associated with choosing our mate for life. And those principles can be applied to such an important decision. We just have to have enough background understanding and be in God's word to apply it to those decisions. Now we all need for certain uh, the ability to make wise decisions because they are important. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis so much that I put it in your notes. He says this. Every time you make a choice, you are t- turning, turning the central part of you, the part that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. You're making a choice and you're turning that part of your character. You're, you're making it a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all the innumerable decisions, you are slowly turning the central thing that's inside of you either into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature by simply making the decisions you make. That's how important decisions are. So I want to talk about a definition of wisdom now. Proverbs chapter 9, verse number 10, I put it on the bottom of your first page down there. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Fear of the Lord is the beginning. Now, we like to make that fear into kind of a casual respect because we respect God. Now we have wisdom. No, you know, fear of God means, wait for it. You ready? Fear. Fear. Now, holy, righteous, awesome. Aw. Okay, I'll buy that. But casual, eh, it's God. No big. He covers. That's not the approach we want to take. The fear of the Lord. Lord, what do you want for my life? Do we open this business or that one? Do we close our business? What do we do for a living? My job. I just lost my job. Now what do I do? We apply biblical principles. The Bible says he does, that doesn't work, doesn't eat. I got to work. I had a conversation with someone not too long ago that was bemoaning the fact that the only work they could get was, was beneath them. He didn't say it that way, but that's what it was. And I, and I responded to him and said, I get it. That wouldn't be my first choice for a job. My least favorite job in my entire life is I worked at a German, no one spoke English but me, 
a German diaper cleaning factory. And guess what job they gave the stupid American college student? The buckets would come in, you would dump them on a countertop. It was my job to separate the contents in the bucket. Not my favorite job. Now, I only took that job in rebellion to my parents. I wanted to be independent. I wanted to be able to rig my nose at them and go, well, leave me alone. And, and look what God did. Fine, lovely, here's your job. Don't you love it? I think I worked there about five days and quit. I understand this kid's facing a, a less than desirable situation, but bringing to bear a biblical principle which says, you don't work, you don't eat, shut up and go do that job until God provides something else. So biblical principles can be applied when we have the fear of the Lord. What does he want? We walk walk through our lives thinking it's entirely up to us. And so little of it is up to us. Yes, we get choices. That's the wonderful thing about following Jesus. But so much of it matters. Not matters as in which house we live in or what income we have, but who we are as people. How we relate to others. How we respond. You and I as believers right this minute in our culture have an opportunity to shine for Jesus like we haven't had in years. This is the moment to look into the face of people in a grocery store or a gas station, the person next door, and speak peace into their life. It is the fear of the Lord that says, oh, who I am, what I say, what I do matters. The impact of wisdom, what what does impact do? I mean, what is the impact of wisdom? What does it do? Proverbs 19, verse 8. He who gets wisdom loves his own soil, 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 can't get it, soul. He who cherishes understanding will soon prosper. Now, that doesn't mean he will soon make lots of money. Don't read it that way. Prosper. We prosper in all kinds of ways. We prosper in health. We prosper in relationships. We prosper in opportunities. He who gets wisdom has opened the door to those things. And wisdom itself is the key to ultimate joy or happiness. Proverbs 25, or 24 rather. Notice that a lot of these are out of the book of Proverbs. I urge you to make Proverbs part of your everyday Bible reading. For me, I try to read the day of the date. So today was the 10th, right? We're on the 10th? Because this morning I read Proverbs 10. I hope I'm on the right day. Doesn't really matter, but I, I think too. I try to read that chapter that day. Because reading Proverbs is hard. It's so disjointed. If you sit down and say, I'm going to read the whole book of Proverbs today. Great, but you're going to get nothing. Well, maybe not nothing. Maybe not you. I get a whole lot of nothing. Because it's so repeated and disjointed. And the, the, the themes are all over the place. But when I read one chapter a day, oh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm tracking with him. He's, he's, he's pushing on this thought, that thought. I can get it. But Proverbs is so important to wisdom. Anyway, Proverbs 24, verses 13 and 14, he says, Eat honey, my son, for it's good. Honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know also that wisdom is sweet to your soul. If you find it, there is a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. Seek wisdom. Want wisdom. Apply wisdom. Now, there's lots of examples of people that do that. In, in our biblical stories. The first one I thought of was in Joshua 24. And, and you don't necessarily have to turn there, although it would be a great thing to do this afternoon. This is Joshua's farewell address. He's about to, to, to die and move off of the scene. And, and, and in Joshua 24, well, actually, I'm going to turn there. Hang on a second. Let's go to Joshua 24. I was going to 
skip it, but I'm not going to do it. Joshua 24. In Joshua 24, um, he's assembled, verse number 1 says, all of the tribes, and he summoned all of the leaders, and he says, says to the people in verse 2, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including, and he names them, worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land of the Euphrates, and I led him throughout Canaan, and I gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac. And then he goes through their line, Jacob, Esau. He says, um, when he gets to verse 5, he says, Then I sent Moses and, and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians, and I brought them out of, out of Egypt. And he's just rehearsing their story. Um, drop down to verse 11 he says then you crossed the Jordan you came into Jericho the citizens of Jericho fought against you and he names all the enemies verse 12 I sent the hornet ahead of you which drove them out before you also the two Amorite kings you did not do it with your own sword or bow so I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build and you live in them and you eat for the vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant so in his decision-making process, there's, a, there's a, a, a situation, and the situation is he has blessed them. Their response should be to throw away the false gods. Verse 14, he says, now you fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. This, this example that we're seeing here in his farewell address is God has done amazing things on your behalf. So now you respond and, and, and act accordingly. And, and it gets down to verse number 15 then with the, the choice, the decision-making part. He says in verse number um, 15, But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether you're going to serve the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, the god of the Amorites in, in, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. A judgment has been made. A decision, a decision has been made. Wisdom has been applied. Starting by what, assessing the, the situation and realizing what the, the response ought to be. And then, then they're, they're faced with a choice. I, I can't help but think all of us in our situation here... In Orange County, in our in our economic uh, backgrounds, where we live, the kind of lives we live, we're we're in this. We are incredibly blessed, and so our response should be to set aside anything and everything that wants to get in our face as a false god, and instead choose to serve the Lord. That's what wisdom will lead us to. Another one in Esther chapter four, Esther. You know the story, she is uh, chosen as a new queen. The problem, the situation is that the Israelites, they're in, they're in exile in Babylon. And, and there's been a decree that they're all going to get wiped out. And it comes on her to do something about it. But she knows if she approaches the king, having not been uh, invited to do so, they chop your head off. Her uncle Mordecai says, go do it. And she's going, ah, 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 ah. It's time for a decision. And, and in that process, she stops in verse 16 and says, wait a minute, we need to go to prayer and fasting. I was just teaching at, at, at another Bible study on fasting. And how many times in our Bible does, does the person pair up prayer with fasting? A serious way to get incredibly focused on the things of God. Fasting uh, affords us that. And that's what she does. And in the end, her resolve in verse 16 is, I'm going to go in 
And if I perish, then I perish. She makes a wise decision based on her situation, based on the promises of God for her people, and says, that's it. I'm doing it. I'm applying good judgment. Wisdom has been applied. The last one I would give you as an example is Elisha. And what, a year or so ago, not that long ago, I taught on Elisha. And and one of the things that struck me about him was Elijah says to him, so buddy, I'm about to fade off the scene here. What can I do for you? And Elisha's response was, I need a double portion of God's spirit. And sometimes we think he's being selfish there. He's not. He recognizes how difficult the task will be to be the prophet of God. And so he says, man, I, I need whatever you had. I need more of it. And so Elijah responds and says, fine, I'll, I'll see that that happens. But you got to be with me when I go up into glory. And then Elijah starts on a trek. He's got a, a route that he takes when he, when he teaches. And so he goes from this town to this town to this town to this town. And every time he turns to Elisha and says, you know, you stay here. I got to go over there. And, and, and almost like a test. And Elisha goes, nope, where you go, I go. And he goes to the next town. So then he finishes his ministry there and he's getting ready to go to the next leg of his journey. He says, why don't you stay here? Elijah does. Elisha says, no, nope, I'm with you. Where you go, I go. I'm not leaving you. And he makes his circuit around those towns and comes back around. And in fact, God does gather him up into glory without a physical death. And because Elisha was standing there watching it happen, lo and behold, the result was the double portion of God's spirit was put on him. The decision was, I ain't leaving. I've made it for all the right reasons, and I'm now not leaving. Godly decisions root in. When they're right, they're right. Whether you like, you, you meaning the lady next door, or someone else, or a member of your family, or your kids are screaming loud, if you make a good, strong, biblical decision, then stand by it. You know, um... An example of that came up just a couple of weeks ago, and I, I had to laugh about it when I was watching on Facebook. All of, all of South County was trying to figure out a way to do Halloween. Now, for me, and I, I say this very carefully, for me, Halloween was always a problem. I just had a really difficult time getting into the, to the uh, dark side of things. Not the sweet little princess in pink, but the dark side of the, 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 the historical roots of, of Halloween. So I had a hard time with it. So when Brianna came along, here we got this little kid. She's four or five years old. Everybody is going out and getting candy, and I got a problem with, with participating. So then it was, okay, I got to really pray about this. And I prayed and prayed and prayed, and I just couldn't get past it. That was just a conviction for me. I didn't see it as a positive thing. I didn't want to participate in it. Not throwing rocks at anybody else. I'm just saying for, for me and my house kind of thing. So I said to Brianna the week before Halloween, okay, here's the, sweet, here's the deal, sweet pea. We can go to this lady's house and this lady's house and ask her for whatever they want. I, I knew them. Uh, Linda Wilson's house was one of them. And uh, you can get whatever you can get out of Aunt Linda, whatever, no big deal. But we're not, gonna, we're not doing trick-or-treating. We're not going to give out candy at our house. And we're going to go to the store and you can get two of those ginormous bags of candies, any one you want. I don't care. So we'd make a trek to the grocery store. She'd pick those two. I'm not talking the little ones. I'm talking the big ones. You know, 50 bag, 50 things in there. And we'd bring it home and we'd dump it in a whatever. And the kid had oh, ridiculous amounts of candy for the next few weeks. For me and my house, that was the way we handled it. We always took that night and did a fun thing. 
We went pizza. We went to saw a movie. We had friends over. We did a sleepover. We camped in the backyard. We did anything and everything to make it a fun thing for a kid without, without participating in Halloween. I got all kinds of pressure from that. Just in this room, you would look at me and go, what a... You are so old-fashioned. Oh, my goodness. But if it was a conviction for me based on things that were important that I understood out of God's word, don't push on me. Nor should I push on you. These, these processes of decision-making that we see in examples of in the Bible are important. Now, James chapter 1, verse number 5, is kind of the, the key verse for understanding getting wisdom. James 1.5 says, if any of you lack wisdom for any decision, this process, that process, this medical procedure, that one, move here, move there. Kids go to college, don't go to college. Go to this college, go to that college. Go to this activity, go to that activity. Have this kind of stuff in our house or that kind of stuff in our house. Any, anything that you need wisdom on, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should, one, ask of God. And that's not a one-time thing. That's a, oh, Lord, is there anything? Ooh, am I missing something? Oh, whatever. Ask of God who generously uh, gives to everyone, to all, without finding fault, and it will be given to him. I am utterly convinced that when we seek God's face, he answers. Now, not in 10 minutes sometimes. Sometimes you need to wait. Sometimes you need, and I'm, I'm going to get into the, to the principles here in a second. But my point being is God is not hiding his wisdom. It's not like he puts it behind his back and goes, I'm not telling you, Amy. I know this is a really big deal for you, but I'm hiding it from you. That is not true. His anticipation is that you will seek his face significantly and repetitively until you actually understand. So let me give you some, some answers to my famous so what question. What are some principles to follow when we're trying to understand how to gain wisdom. Number one, we have to value wisdom. Our world does not value wisdom. We value speed, decisiveness, make it now, get her done. That is not what what God's word has to say. Proverbs chapter four, verse seven says, wisdom is supreme. Therefore, get wisdom. Though it costs you all you got, get wisdom. Important judgments take time. And they take input. So we're not in a hurry. We want to value wisdom. We want to seek it out. We want to to talk about it. We want to ask someone to bring to bear maybe some passages in Scripture we hadn't thought about that that might shed a light on this decision. We're not getting your done. Wisdom, value wisdom. Our culture does not value wisdom. It values speed and decisiveness. It values multitasking. And really all multitasking is is the ability to shift from one focus to the other quickly. You're not doing two things at once. You're just doing that and doing that and then moving on quickly. And we value that as a culture. So we make decisions that way. Dumb, dumb, doom, dumb, doom, dumb, doom, doom, done. And out of that does not come wisdom. Wisdom may take some, some valuing. Secondly, because we value it, we're, we're choosing to spend time in prayer. In prayer. 
First Thessalonians chapter 5 talks about pray without ceasing. We've talked about that as a Bible study before. That doesn't mean that you walk around literally with your hands grasped, your eyes closed, and you're praying all day long out loud. What it means is that your heart is set on prayer. Your default is prayer. You're driving and you think about something, you pray about it. You're in the shower, you think about something, you pray about it. You're falling off to sleep, you think about it. You get up in the middle of the night to make that little run to the rescue, you use that as a time to pray for someone. Your your default is to pray. You don't don't choose to fuss or worry or, or have fears, you choose to pray. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, this is a very familiar verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will what? Direct your paths. So prayer is that process. That's how we process wisdom. We talk to our Heavenly Father. If you and your husband have a major decision, should we sell the house, we shouldn't sell the house, moving to Idaho, let's see, Idaho, Austin, where else, and somewhere in Nevada. By the way, of all those, go to Idaho. No, never mind. So anyway, so you're faced with a, a major decision. You don't sit at the kitchen table the first time it comes up with a cup of coffee. You go, okay, we're going. It doesn't work that way. You, you discuss it. There are points made. You're thoughtful. You're considerate. You make a few phone calls. You check out some, some, some information. It's the same way in our relationship with the Lord. We talk to him about it. Well, I was thinking, I don't know, you know, I read, it is a, it's a dialogue. Because I value wisdom, I'm willing to commit myself to some seasons of prayer. Now, in a practical way, the third step is define the issue. Define the issue or the opportunity or the problem. you got to get it clear. What is it we're making a decision about? I often used to feel like as head of school when there was a kid issue and the parents were were struggling with it, that one of my roles was to make sure they knew what the problem was. Because what they think the problem is probably ain't the problem. You know, so I would ferret through the, no, no, no. You know, the, the, the problem might be suddenly Johnny's acting out in class and smacks kids. Problem is we need discipline. This kid needs to quit smacking kids. Yeah, it's true. He should quit smacking kids. But... Ferreting through what's the problem, what's the real problem, what's the real issue. Oh, mom and dad just split up. Dad just moved out of the house. Kid is a mess. That's the problem. So when we are looking at our application of wisdom, it is important to sit down and think through what is the real opportunity or the real issue. So, for an example, and I'm making fun so that you can see my illustration. We want to move to, and I picked Idaho for you. We want to move to Idaho. Okay, so what's the real issue about moving to Idaho? Uh, we, don't like, we don't like the politics of California. Okay, I understand. Is there anything behind that? Maybe. We don't like the taxation. Okay, I get it. I don't either, by the way. So is there anything behind that? Well, you know, we don't like people telling us what to do. We got rights. Mm. Is there anything behind that? You see where I'm going? 
I think that we need to, during our, our time of trying to find wisdom, make sure we clearly define the issue. And one of the tools that helps me is the if-then. If I do this, then this will be true. If that, then this. If that, then this. Is there an if-then that I can go through that will help me actually define the issue? It's very interesting in Deuteronomy chapter 11. There is a passage there that has to do with the children of Israel moving into the promised land. And, and what happens is they, they, they set up a situation where there's a, an if-then. If you obey, there will be blessings. And then there's some bunch of curses. But if you do not, here's the curses. It's a real clear if, if, if good, good. If not, not so good. That if-then thing can help you make a clear understanding of what the real issue is. Number four, you need to search for biblical counsel. Biblical counsel. Not the cost of houses. Back to my illustration about moving to, to Boise. The issue about moving to Boise is not, is housing cheaper? Let me assure you, it is. It is. But is that the only determiner of where we should live? When I was getting ready a few years before my repurposing, one of, uh, one of my conversations with my friend Barb was, well, we're going to have to sell the house because I'm going to the Northwest, which is why I selected Idaho for you, by the way. I really wanted Alaska, though. And I, and I had in mind, you know, either Sitka or I don't particularly like uh, Ketchikan, but, you know, one of those up there. Give me, give me as far up where the fishing's good and there ain't many people and this is going to be great. And the more times that I had discussions with godly people about the, the desires of my heart, I used to quote the verse about God likes to give us the desires of our heart, and he knows that I like to run around in jeans and sweatshirts and fish for salmon. So I'm going to the Northwest. People began to, to, to give me counsel and, and, and direct things to me in God's word. And it became obvious pretty soon that really what I was choosing was I want to be on vacation for the rest of my life. It became a little clearer to me. Well, wait a minute. If you're 70 years old, you're not done. I, I defy you to find retirement in God's word. It ain't in there. Trust me, I tried. What is in there is that in any season of life, you make yourself available to be useful to God. And the more I thought that through, the more I said, wait a minute, you know, the three people that might show up in my ministries in Sitka... I might be better off where, where I have networking, where I have opportunities, where I know people, where I, I have a, a chances to, to, to be involved if God would so choose. The, the, the godly counsel, the, the, the need for, for godly counsel, starting with the counsel out of God's word. Now, one of the things that will help you in making major decisions is to determine what your core values really are. So it might be a great exercise, a great weekend away for you and your husband. Take your Bibles, get some help from some people if you don't have ready references, and say, we're going to spend the weekend and we're going to write our family's core values. What matters to us? Out of God's word, not out of our own choices. It's not go to Sitka and fish for the rest of your life. And, and when you write down your core values, so for example, that's what happened to me about, no, I didn't move to Sitka was my core value was I wanted to be useful to the Lord. 
I felt like that the next season of my life I would have freedom to write and speak in ways that I didn't have in the previous season, and I needed to make that available to him. It might use it, might not use it. I get it, but I wanted to be available. That was a core value. If you write down your core values and then you take them and lay it up against that next decision, ah, there's some clarity now. What in God's word speaks to those core values? So I, I am suggesting that seeking out of God's word counsel is the right step. And then the next step in seeking counsel is to get it from people, godly people. Proverbs 13.10 says, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Now, I'm not great at that. I admit it. I'm sorry. It's sin. I, I'm not great at taking advice. I have to almost be thumped upside the head sometimes. And God in his graciousness keeps thumping. But I have learned a little bit about this. That prior to major decisions, there is wisdom in calling up a friend, talking to a pastor, seeking counsel from someone that knows God's word well. And they speak into your life. Wisdom is found when you take advice. Sherry, you're going to have a great time during the summer. You can't fish when the river freezes. What are you going to do for seven months when it's black outside? All day long. And those two people that were coming to your Bible study, they can't get there because it's snowing three feet a day. No, you can't write because there's no Wi-Fi during that time period. Oh. Oh. Might need to rethink that a little. Godly advice. Sixth thing I put down as a practical step of applying wisdom is count the cost. In Luke 14, he talks about who would build a house without counting the cost. Who would, who would make a major plan for something without sitting down and saying, well, it's going to take this, it's going to take that, it's going to take these resources, that, this kind of schedule, whatever. The counting of the cost will help you apply wisdom. Well, wait a minute. I thought it was going to be, you know, 10 bucks. It's going to be 10 million bucks. Oh, that might affect that decision a little bit. Count the cost. Be specific. When your kids come to you with a brilliant idea, I used to call those scalingly brilliant ideas, Lord. And the Lord would chuckle at me, much like you do as your kid comes running in. I have a scalingly brilliant idea. When you, when you have that scalingly brilliant idea, sit down. And count the cost. Well, if that, then that. If that, yeah, yeah, oh, that's going to cost that. Oh, hmm, that's going to take that long. One of my greatest problems as the head of the school was always estimation of time. I always thought it could be done in about 10 minutes. About 10, no problem. And, you know, the truth is it was three days. And my staff would always go, uh, can, we, can we rethink that time frame? Um, when we carefully count the cost, it allows wisdom to come into the decision process. The next one I put down is learn to trust God with the results, with the outcome. Now, we all know Romans 8.28. So if you don't know that verse, turn to it. Let's go to Romans 8.28. And then I want to talk about Proverbs 16. 8.28, Romans 8.28. This is one that's quoted to us a lot. We use it in a variety of contexts. The Bible says this. 828. Uh, and those, wait a minute, my, my eyes are not focusing here so good. 
Here we go. And we know, I have it memorized, I should have just done it that way. And we know that all things, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, we like to think that that says, we know that God works good for all of us. Period. He brings the goods. Nothing but the goods. Well, wait a minute. That's just not true. The working for good for those who love him, the definition of good there might be a disease. Think about that. The definition of good there might be a loss. The definition of good might be the wrong, the wrong from your perspective, candidate one. Good comes in all sizes and shapes. They're God's sizes and shapes, not mine. If I had my way, we'd eat Cadbury's every day. But God's goodness says, Sherry, it is not wise to eat. Somebody went to England, by the way. Tomorrow I get another bar. I just thought I'd tell you. Anyway, good comes in all kinds of sizes and shapes. And not necessarily the way we would define it. Um, J.I. Packer, no, excuse me, not J.I. Packer. John Piper um, wrote an article. uh, And one of his articles, that this particular one was, Don't Waste your Your Cancer. And the whole point of that article is cancer can be good, small g. There are things that can come from a medical diagnosis that is not one we would choose. So be careful when you look at Romans 8, 28, and don't think that that's just a, a get-out-of-jail card and it's, a, it's a, you know, a warranty for anything and everything and a, and a gift card to get you anything you want. That's not how it goes. Look at Proverbs um, 22, excuse me, Proverbs 16, 16:33. He says, "The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. They used to determine wisdom and decisions by rolling dice. They weren't dice, but they were like dice. They called it being the die was cast. The idea that they would take a lot, the word lot simply means something that they would roll. It could be a rock, it could be a, a shell, it could have been anything, but it had a significance. And when they rolled it, if it went a certain way, they, they made their determinations and decisions by it. You know, almost like you would put something in your hand and behind your back and say, okay, right hand or left hand. But the point of the verse is the lot is cast. Yeah, okay, it's out there. But every decision is superintended by the Lord. Look, if you're really moaning over our last week of experience as Americans, may I suggest to you, it did not catch God by surprise. It did not. Ultimate decisions are superintended by our Savior. And I take great, great ultimate joy in that. Sometimes through tears, sometimes with a broken heart, sometimes with great anguish, sometimes through gritted teeth. But at the end of the day... I need to learn to trust God for the outcome in my own personal life, in the life of those I care for, and what's going on in my world. Number eight is give the Lord praise for any success you do get. Remember, we can't crow about our decisions. Boy, that was a really wise decision. Oh, I made a really smart decision with that one. Maybe. But if you went through all the other steps before we got here, we're going to have to attribute it to God's wisdom. And ultimately, we want to give God the praise for whatever is going on around our lives. John 3.27 says, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. I cannot crow. I cannot. 
Because ultimately, God was behind it. Whatever it is. If it's a position, an opportunity, a, a possession. This, this all comes from the Lord. And we need to give Him the praise. And lastly, I put on your notes, remember that good decisions take time. Proverbs 14, 15 says, A prudent man gives thought to his ways. Prudent, wise. So the bottom line for our lesson today is that good, godly decisions are confirmed or rooted in the word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one that's approved. That God goes, yep, thumbs up. Sherry's doing this right. A workman who does not need to be ashamed because they have correctly handled the word of truth. Because they have been in this book. Prior to making a decision, they rooted their thinking in wisdom. And out of that then comes the pleasure, the, the satisfaction, the peace of knowing. Okay, I guess we're moving to Boise. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, this is a tough subject and one that is not cookie cut. There's not a step A, step B, step C done. It is part of our working relationship with you and the Spirit of God. That in our prayer time, in our fasting time, in our focus time... We bring before you the options of our lives, the judgments that need to be made, and we beg you, we ask you, we implore you to give us wisdom. And ultimately, Lord, once we have sought all of those good sources and we make a call, then we can sit back and rest, knowing that you were superintending it all along. Give us wisdom, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.